Welcome to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. I'm Ed Yaka, the Director of Communications and Public Policy. Movements to ban books long have been part of American history. Books have been attacked because they express views that challenge powerfully held beliefs, whether those views be about capitalism, race, sexuality, or gender identity. The fight against banning books has always been the focus of the work of the ACLU because it is a First Amendment issue. We believe that while people can make choices for themselves and the young people in their lives as to what is appropriate, they cannot make a decision for an entire community. In recent months, there's been an exponential increase in the attempts to ban books in public schools and public libraries across the country. The effort is the result of an organized, dedicated campaign aimed at limiting access to information that some disfavor. To talk about the fight against attempts to ban books and ideas from public spaces, we are pleased to be joined by two great guests. Deborah Caldwell-Stone, she, her, is the director of the Office of Intellectual Freedom at the American Library Association and a national leader in the fight against banning books. And Rebecca Glenberg, she, her, is a senior staff attorney with the ACLU of Illinois, focusing on general civil liberties, including working on free speech and First Amendment issues. So Deborah and Rebecca, welcome to Talking Liberties. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me, Ed. So Deborah, you know, as I mentioned in the opening, it appears at least that we're seeing sort of a marked increase in challenges to books across the country during 2022. And I'm wondering what the ALA sees as happening or how you sort of describe that or, or how you think about what we're experiencing right now. Well, for the last 18 months, we've been observing a marked increase in the demands to censor books from schools and libraries across the country. And the volume is just incredible. We went from an average of 300 or 350 reports of censorship to our office on an annual basis to 729 reports in 2021, which is truly remarkable. Most of those were concentrated in the last quarter of 2021 when school began. We had a situation where we were receiving reports and requests for assistance with censorship demands, three, four, or five times a day, which is just really remarkable. I've worked uh, here at the American Library Association for 22 years. I've never experienced this volume of censorship in the 22 years I've worked here. It's truly remarkable. And what we're seeing are efforts by organized groups, Moms for Liberty, No Left Turn in Education, Parents Defending Education, activating local chapters across the country and all parts of the country. And they're going to school boards and library boards and demanding that books be removed from those libraries based on their objections that reflect their political, moral, religious views. The target's primarily books dealing with the lives of individuals who've been traditionally marginalized in our communities. 
LGBTQIA persons and books that reflect the lives and experiences of Black persons, Indigenous persons, persons of color. Very targeted. If you look at our most challenged books list for 2021, nearly all the books deal with the lives and experiences of LGBTQIA persons. And many of them are books really targeted for children and families that have LGBTQIA members, picture books that really are just messages of inclusion, but they're being targeted for removal. That's really sort of a dark picture you paint when you think about people who are already marginalized then being the targets for this. I wonder, is it the same experience in Illinois? Are we able to escape that in any way? Absolutely not. We've observed a number of very contentious book controversies. In Downers Grove, there was a challenge to Maya Kobabi's book, Genderqueer, in the high school library. And in that situation, we actually had Proud Boys showing up the board meetings that were intimidating individuals and following them after the meeting on social media, even going into the parking lot after the meeting as in an effort to intimidate the board into making a decision. And, but fortunately that board retained genderqueer for a voluntary reading in that high school library. We saw an effort during Pride Month by an organization to really disrupt the ability of libraries and booksellers to dis- uh, LGBTQ themed books to customers, to readers throughout the community. I know that Anderson Bookstore faced a particular challenge. Somebody was coming in on almost daily basis to hide books dealing with gender identity and sexual orientation during Pride Month. And we've had challenges to drag queen story hours, similar situations across, really across the state. Uh, we, I don't think any part of Illinois has been immune to seeing a book challenge or a challenge to a library program or service in the last year or so. Uh, having been working for the ACLU, first in Virginia, and then here for almost as long as you've been at the ALA, I feel like I've seen a few cycles of this. And of course, you know, particularly reminiscent were some cycles where books like Heather has two mommies and others that reflect, as you said, the experiences of LGBTQ families, although we didn't see so many about trans or non-binary people then. What, what do you think is making the difference here? Is it the level of organization? Is it the involvement of groups like the Proud Boys? Why is it so particularly intense right now? I actually think it's being treated as a wedge issue during a very contentious election season. We can look back to Glenn Youngkin's success in leveraging a parent's complaint about Toni Morrison's beloved as a way of activating voters in that gubernatorial election. And we are also seeing a number of groups like Heritage Foundation, Family Policy Alliance, advancing rhetoric around what they call critical race theory, but actually targeting Black perspectives on our history with racism and slavery in the United States. And now we're seeing individuals like Christopher Rufo actually going out on listservs, arguing that there's a gender ideology, really erasing the identity, the dignity, and the humanity of gay and transgender people 
and creating false narrative around those issues and encouraging people to go to schools and libraries and uh, really, you know, cancel those books and erase those voices uh, from library shelves and from our classrooms. So I think we're seeing, you know, when I talk about an organized campaign, I, I really do believe that we see the same messages and almost very tight discipline on messaging around these issues across the country. And social media isn't helping the situation. We've actually seen situations where uh, an individual sees a complaint about a book, gets, sees a viral video at a school board meeting, or sees a post by Moms for Liberty group or Purple for Parent group, and they take that list and they demand that those books be removed from the library. Turns out the library doesn't have those books in the collection. They didn't even go so far as to even make sure that the books were there, but they're making the demands for censorship. So we're seeing a real movement that has organization and money behind it, and it's all done at the local level, and they're turning out to be the loudest voices in the room, and so they're getting attention and they're getting action. And, and so we, you know, we're really working on organizing a response to that and try and providing tools to individuals to organize on the ground, to go to board meetings and become another voice in the room. Because we know that from observation, when others speak up, when there's other voices in the room, often boards don't feel that pressure to engage in censorship. You know, I know we want to turn in, in a few minutes to those questions about those steps, but, you know, you mentioned Christopher Rufo, who was one of the people who sort of led the charge in terms of supposedly teaching critical race theory in elementary school. We know that critical race theory is a legal concept that is taught at elite law schools, not in kindergarten. But I, I wonder, what is it that's kind of linking that together? Is it simply an effort to resist changes that are happening in society? Is it part of, again, some larger political movement? I, I just wonder, like those seem odd things to kind of pull together and connect. Well, I actually think it's both. You know, certainly we're coming out of a time when young people's education was disrupted. Parents felt disempowered about what they could do to educate their children, you know, help their children lead good lives during the pandemic. We're seeing education losses, but we're also seeing change in society. We're a, you know, we're increasingly diverse and multicultural society. And I think parents coming out of the pandemic are afraid. They feel like they've lost control. They want to protect their children. They're afraid for their children. And I think much of the book banning we see may be, uh, at least on the part of individual parents, a response to the fact that they feel out of control and maybe controlling what their kids read is a response to that. But I think the larger political movement is a cynical effort to exploit the differences, to, uh, to try to preserve a status quo that has silenced and marginalized individuals who are gay, transgender, or queer, and to put in, keep in place systemic racism that has disadvantaged Black persons, persons of color traditionally in our society as well. Uh, and that's where I think we're, what we're the, that kind of rhetoric we're seeing out of advocates like Mr. Rufo and the Heritage Foundation. I, you know, I actually subscribe to their newsletters and 
and it's almost a constant drumbeat reminding me that you know critical race theory is in our schools turning our children into marxists and gender ideology is going to poison young people's minds you know and without more to question that without other voices in the room it might it's probably very easy for parents experiencing that fear and uncertainty in the face of change to pick up those narratives so rebecca i want to turn back to you and 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 sort of ask you a little bit about your perspective on on all of these questions from a civil liberties point of view what you're seeing in illinois and and what's happening in terms of legal challenges across the country First, from a civil liberties point of view, I would emphasize what Deborah said about particular voices being targeted, those that are generally already excluded or have been excluded. And that part of it also, although it's really intense right now, is not necessarily new. Whenever we go through one of these book banning phases, it seems to me, at least in recent memory, that you see a lot of books by by black people and by queer people or and or addressing issues related to race and gender and sexual orientation and it's really a very very small step if it's even a step at all between this tendency to spew disdain and and scorn about these books and to display those same feelings about Black children or gay children or trans children. It's something that I've seen in, for example, Virginia in addressing issues with trans people, trans students using the bathroom, Um, You have people who are purportedly talking about taking care of our children and but but they slide very easily into saying very hateful things about a fellow student of theirs and and I and I see that this time as well I see in some of these discussions of books like gender queer for example going ahead and calling students who might want to read those books various names. It's very tied into you know, notions of racial and gender equity, and, and those patterns seem to repeat, maybe sometimes depending on who the villain of the moment is understood to be. And indeed, you know, in, in the one Supreme Court case that kind of addressed issues of censorship in school libraries, you saw a list of books that also contained not solely, but a really disproportionate number of Black authors being censored. On the, on the legal front, one of the very scary things that I think a lot of us have noticed, and again, coming from Virginia, again, where Glenn Youngkin has used these books as a wedge issue, is, is again, a small step from demanding control over what our kids read to demanding control over what everyone reads. And in Virginia in particular, these groups tried to sue Barnes and Noble, among others, under state law, claiming that books like Genderqueer were harmful to minors, in fact, obscene as to minors. And, uh, you know, the bookstores had to put controls in place to ensure that they were not being 
sold to minors. It was such a small step for them to make that leap, but it's so um, huge and consequential to think of these, this kind of book banding expanding into every context. Fortunately, uh, the judge in Virginia recognized that the statute under which they were suing was unconstitutional and tossed the case out. But so far, Governor Youngkin appears disinclined to condemn that sort of legal action or repeal that state law. So uh, it, it, it seems to me a very scary time. Yeah. yeah. I would actually follow up with that. Well, that reframing of trying to define any work that touches on gender identity, sexual orientation, or deals with sex education, or you know the human experience with sex as inappropriate for minors is something we're seeing going on across the country. We hear all the time that a book like Gender Queer is illegal to distribute to minors. We've actually had a number of incidents where, for example, a branch of mass resistance actually filed a criminal complaint against a library and the library staff for pandering obscenity to minors under Wyoming law. Um, like in Virginia, you know, prosecutors are not picking this up. They're saying, no, the books are not obscene. No crime has been committed. But I think there's real pressure to try to shift the framing and the narrative around materials that deal with sex, sexuality, gender identity, sexual orientation as inherently inappropriate for any minor under the age of 18. And we're actually seeing legislation introduced at the state house level. Next door in Indiana, there's been a multi-year effort to remove the traditional legal protections extended to educators and librarians from prosecution for obscenity violations when they offer materials dealing with sex ed or uh, gender identity to students. And we're truly afraid that this is the year that the legislators behind that bill will actually succeed and open up librarians to prosecution. And in the Virginia Beach case that you've mentioned, Rebecca, one of the motivations behind filing that legal action was to the declaration that gender queer was obscene so that they could then turn and prosecute the school librarians who had put it on the shelf in the high school library in Virginia Beach. So it's a really toxic situation. And we see it come out like in Downers Grove one of the actions the Proud Boys started doing was using the words groomer and targeting parents and educators who had spoke out in defense of the book as groomers, actually even going so far as to report people to the family services for child abuse, you know, and so we're seeing a real toxicity around some of the debates in, in this situation. Yeah, it's amazing how quickly these terms have been turned and expanded around these things so that just supporting educational materials now makes one, you know, subject to these kinds of, of charges. You know, Deborah, you know, you put together a list of the top banned books every year from the American Library Association. I wonder what you see for 2022 as those top books and and a little bit of the kinds of books that have been historically banned and how they fit into some of these themes we've been talking about. Well, I'll take the last the second part of your question first. You know, I think that we have reached a point where we don't concern ourselves with adult books written for adults. 
intended for an adult audience. You know, uh, I think the days when the post office could keep Ulysses from coming into the country are long gone. But where we see the debates and have been seeing the debates for decades now is what books are available to young people, both in the classroom and in the library. And you know, the focus of concern has shifted over time. When I look at our most challenged book lists over the last few decades, going back to 1990, for example, you know, in the 90s, the big concern were, you know, were kids being corrupted by secular humanism. And in fact, I think there was even a Seventh Circuit case addressing the presence of secular humanism in textbooks in Illinois. Then the concern shifted to Harry Potter. That was the, the book challenge du jour in the early part of the 21st century. Witchcraft, teaching defiance of adult authority. And of course, we've always had constant challenges to books that dealt with coming of age stories and first love, teen romance. I think of works of John Green and Judy Bloom as belonging to this category, uh, or Catcher in the Rye, where profanity was freely used. Those have always been off and on our most challenged list. But really starting uh, about 2010 and really ramping up after the decision of the Supreme Court to affirm same-sex couples' right to marriage in 2015 we've seen a real ramping up of challenges to books dealing with gender identity and sexual orientation, uh, including books like Heather Has Two Mommies or In My Mother's House, which are books that simply portray life with parents who are same sex and, and you know, or have same sex relatives in the family. And it's a welcoming and affirming message for those people. And then we had a little bit of an interruption after the murder of George Floyd and the focus on racism and systemic racism in our society and the pushback from former administration with their executive orders and legislation targeting what they called divisive concepts around racism and sexism. We saw a rise of challenges to books dealing with the experience of Black Americans and works like the 1619 Project. You can look at our list and we're seeing primarily works targeting Black authors, the experience of Black persons, for example, Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give, which is such a searing representation of the impact of police violence on Black lives and Black communities, but primarily books dealing with gender identity and sexual orientation. One of our most challenged books for the last three years is a middle grade book. There's not a hint of sex around it. It's just the story of a uh, child discovering that they are transgender and their experience in grappling with that as a eight-year-old. The book's called Melissa. That's a change in title. It was originally called George, but the author wanted to respect the journey of the character and rename the book. It's being described as pornography or obscene by some of these advocacy groups that are opposed to LGBTQ rights. I think the real focus has been on the voices of marginalized communities and trying to impose a kind of 1950s orthodoxy on what's available to young people in libraries, like pretending that this doesn't exist, or if we just don't acknowledge that it exists, we'll keep our young people safe from turning gay or understanding the fact that we have lived in a racist society that disadvantages people uh, in so many ways. So and there's something about saying that something is banned or taboo that, as we always know, has always led uh, young people not to pursue it in any way. 
Um, you know, that strategy has always worked at every level of society, uh, no matter what it was our parents told us we shouldn't learn or read or look at. So I, I can I can see the, the goal there. Uh, Rebecca, I wonder if I can ask, why is it important to fight this? What What's the principle here that makes this important to really uh, sort of push back against this perspective that Deborah has been describing? The suppression of books for as long as books have existed, and before that, before they were books, is the same as the suppression of ideas. So you are, as Deborah said, you are prescribing an orthodoxy for Americans and American children from which neither they nor their reading material may deviate. And so you are preventing the learning of new ideas and new perspectives. You are disrupting their ability to learn critical thinking. You're distorting their ability to feel empathy or compassion for people who are different from them. When you look at First Amendment values in general, you are really disrupting their ability to be good citizens because you need to be able to hear and evaluate the perspectives of others to be a good citizen. And I think in a democratic and pluralistic society, you need to be able to do that in order to be a good voter and a good participant. The, the other thing that really troubles me about these book banning cycles is in addition to closing off all these avenues of learning new ideas and thinking in new ways, you are teaching the kids a lesson about America and about democracy and about how things go. And when you see shouting people at school board meetings getting their way, you are sending the message to kids that might makes right or that, you know, all you have to do is yell loud enough and, and you can win. You are teaching them that we live in a society that does not value a diversity of ideas or a diversity of people. You're telling them that some of our most cherished democratic ideals are a sham. Um, and that meta lesson to children, I feel, is so destructive and even in and of itself is worth fighting against. So, Deborah, you mentioned earlier, and I want to sort of explore this, the steps you're taking and the tools that you're sort of creating or putting together for libraries, educational institutions, and others who are facing these sorts of attacks. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. And I'm really interested if there are specific things that the listeners to this podcast can do in their own community to help in that effort. Absolutely. For many years now, ALA has provided support to individual librarians, library workers, and educators who are addressing book censorship or other challenges to resources and services available through libraries, because we see an enormous number of challenges to Pride Month displays, for example. Uh, and so we've offered counsel on strategies, talking points, best practices, best policies that are intended to preserve access to information 
information of preserving everyone's ability to choose what they want to read for themselves, serving the information needs of everyone in the community and not just one group with the loudest voice. But with this ramping up of book challenges in the last 18 months to two years, we actually had a period of self-reflection last year and realized that there were these groups organizing to censor books, and there needed to be tools to help individuals and communities to stand up and raise their own voices against censorship. So we've created a new grassroots advocacy platform called Unite Against Book Bans, and you can find it online at uniteagainstbookbans.org, just all one word. And it's intended to provide individuals and groups and communities uh, a grassroots advocacy strategy. There's a toolkit that provides talking points, how to approach candidates for local office who would have control over policy and procedure, how to go to school board meetings and library board meetings and use public comment periods to raise your voice against censorship, writing letters to the editors, making sure that you're registered to vote and you know who you're voting for, because even a shift of 50 or 60 voters in a local board election can dictate what information is available to the community. We've seen even here in Northern Illinois elections uh, for library board members where just because only 200 people in the entire community voted, a minority group was able to take control of the library and dismantle the availability of library services in that community. So the United Against Book Bans is intended to provide the tools, the resources, the information people need to fight that. And in fact, for Ban Books Week this year, one of our focuses will be promoting voter registration day, which happens to fall during Ban Books Week, to get people to make sure that they're registered to vote, that they know who their candidates for local office are, and when it involves school boards and library boards, what their position is on preserving everyone's right to choose what they want to read and preserving open access to information. And we're, we're strongly encouraging everyone to sign up individually to support the campaign. And we're also soliciting support from partners across the country, publishers, civil liberties groups, authors, writers, uh, you know, all across the country. Uh, we're trying to build a, a powerful voice that counters the voices of groups like Moms for Liberty and makes it clear that the vast majority of individuals in our country, voters, parents alike, support the right to read. I mean, there's been polling done, actually. We've done our own polling, but also polling by national organizations like CBS News, uh, their major media outlets. And doesn't matter what political party or what part of the political spectrum people belong to, the vast majority of people oppose the idea of the government deciding what people can read and what they can access, or taking those choices away from parents and families. Because when you talk about parents' rights, we and they say, well, it's my right to dictate what my child reads. That's absolutely correct. But it shouldn't be a right to dictate what other families choose, what other children can read. And that's what we're seeing here in the country. So we're hoping that this grassroots advocacy campaign will provide the counterweight to these groups that have been so successfully organized for the last few years, and that it's available to every community that uh, an individual that wants to fight censorship and to prevent kind of actions that we're seeing that are really marginalizing so many young people in our communities, because that's 
what I think sometimes gets lost here. Young people have First Amendment rights too. And when we talk about parents' rights, we forget about the right of the young person to make their own choices. You know, we wouldn't force adolescent to go to their parents' church if they chose another church. Why should we force them to read only what their parents choose to read, especially for uh, mature minors that are preparing to enter adulthood? So you know, it's a part of the conversation that often gets lost in these debates these days. Rebecca, you know, one of the things Deborah reminds us again is the importance of exercising your, your right to vote. And I wonder if that doesn't strike you as the thing we need here, just in terms of having a broader sense of the voice of the entire community. Yeah, absolutely. That is essential. I 100% endorse that idea and, and really everything that Deborah just said about what you can and should do to stand up for the right to read in your community. It's hard. It takes some time to learn about your local school board candidates, but it is so worth it if you care about the rights of your kids and their educational opportunities. I mean, one thing I might just add to what Deborah has said is if you are a parent in a school, you can involve your kids in this effort. And then you're teaching a very positive lesson about democracy and how it's supposed to work. You know, often the kids themselves can be very effective advocates at a school board meeting. And I think, you know, sometimes it can just be very affirming for them to have that opportunity to stand up to bullies and to explain what they value in these books. Deborah and Rebecca, as we as we close, if I could ask you each to sort of just say, you know, why does this matter and why should we fight against banning books? I think we're fighting for our children's future and our own future. We're fighting in a very real sense for what our democracy stands for, you know, and the right of everyone to have happiness and a successful life and to be able to um, engage in society, to have a say in what our society is like. This is really an authoritarian autocratic movement that is trying to narrow our opportunities, to narrow the opportunity for education, to define what we are as a country. And so it's just a moment right now when we need to pay attention. These moments happen throughout history, you know, and we can look back to the world wars and we can look at the McCarthy era. I think we're in another inflection point at that time where it, we're called upon as individuals, as citizens, as parents, to have to invest a little more time in those endeavors. And, and knowing that in investing that time now means that we might be able to live good lives that are free from discrimination that we can that allow us to live our best lives and pursue all our opportunities. I know it's a lot of highfalutin language, but I, I think it's an, a, it's important for us to pay attention to this right now and, and to uphold some of the fundamental tenets of our democracy, like the freedom to read, our First Amendment rights to make those choices for ourselves. You know, to echo that, book banning is, and more generally, control over information is the primary tool of authoritarians and totalitarians. 
And you can see that very easily when you look at countries like Russia, where not just books banned, but, you know, speech that deviates from the party line and, um, and, and denies the righteousness of the war in Ukraine, for example. This is how you um, get an entire nation of millions of people to submit, is to control what information they are allowed to have. And but sort of at, at the more local level, you know, again, I think by standing up for books, you are also standing up for those minority populations and particularly racial and sexual minorities whose voices are being squashed and, and who are being sent a message that not only are these books wrong, but you are wrong. And no child should have to undergo that kind of rebuke from their community. Um, it's, it's well, I don't, I don't need to say it further, but it's obvious. Yes. No, I mean, it's, I mean, we, we hear from the students that it's uh, an incredible attack and an act of erasure when they take books out of the library that reflect their lives beyond their rights as readers, beyond everything else, to be told that your story doesn't belong. And, and it's a targeted message uh, to silence you, to erase you, to let you know that you don't belong. And that's not what we, that's not the message that young people should be receiving. And we should fight that with every fiber of our being. So uh, Deborah Caldwell Stone and Rebecca Glenberg, thank you so much for joining us today and for having this discussion. We are really grateful for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Ed. Uh, I appreciate it. And thanks for the great conversation, Rebecca. Oh, same. I, I always enjoy talking about these issues, even as they infuriate me. That is our episode for today. Thank you for joining us for this discussion. If you're interested in more information about the ACLU of Illinois or any of our work, please visit our website at www.aclu-il.org. This program is produced by Kimberly Kozeel. The executive director of the ACLU of Illinois is Colleen Connell. You can rate this show wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to join us for the next episode of Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. Have a great day.